This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. From our offices overlooking New York's Riverside Park, this is the Commonweal Podcast. On this episode of the Commonweal Podcast, we're highlighting the issue of December 1st, 2018, which included our special feature, Why We Came, Why We Left, Why We Stayed, a collection of essays by converts, practicing cradle Catholics, and lapsed or ex-Catholics. The senior editor, Matthew Boudway, is here to talk about how the series came together. We'll also be speaking with three of our contributors, Ross Douthit, Helene Stepinski, and Dorothy Fordenberry. The December 1st issue also included our annual Christmas Critics Roundup, and four Commonweal editors are here to talk about the books they read in 2018 and are recommending for you. Plus, a look at Cassandra Nelson's new essay about the lifeline that the liturgical calendar provides. This is the Commonweal Podcast. I'm with Matthew Boudway, the senior editor of Commonweal. And Matt, let's talk a little bit about the genesis of this project. Well, um, we first talked about the idea a couple years ago, and it's been so long that I've almost forgotten what I was thinking when I first proposed it. And certainly the significance of the project has changed because of events since then. But I guess the idea was that it would be interesting to juxtapose essays by people who had decided for whatever reason, to leave the church or no longer to practice the faith with essays by people who had converted to Catholicism, usually as adults, and then to juxtapose both of those kinds of essays with essays by people who are cradle Catholics and have continued practicing the faith, a group that includes presumably most of our readers, most of our contributors. And by putting those three kinds of essays together, we thought we might tease out certain underlying issues that well, that, that are easy to overlook even for editors at a Catholic magazine. You alluded uh, to some of the things that have transpired in the two years since we first began uh, talking about this project. So maybe that's a it's a good way to sort of think about why does this package seem especially resonant or relevant now? Well, I mean, the obvious things are the scandals of this, this past summer. There was the Pennsylvania grand jury report. There was the, the news about former Cardinal uh, Theodore McCarrick. There was the the Viganò testimony that tried to link McCarrick's scandal to Pope Francis. And in the wake of all of those demoralizing scandals, I think a lot of Catholics were wondering what was going on uh, and, and feeling um, feeling alienated from the church and, and wounded. But there was also, even before that, I think uh, for at least a lot of common will readers, uh, there was a sense of alienation because they, you know, they observed that in the last few years, Serious Catholics in this country had thrown in their lot with with Donald Trump, mm-hmm. uh, a brazenly wicked man who seems hell bent on uh, contradicting as many of the beatitudes as he can, and that too was a cause of perplexity and discouragement, consternation, and so yeah, people uh, uh, who read Common Will, I think, have been feeling more alienated than usual, and yet most of our readers remain Catholics, and we thought it might be a good time to ask the question, what is this really all about in the first mm-hmm. place, to move to, to first things, as it were, yeah. and talk about mm-hmm. what's really at, at the nerve of all this, why do people continue to practice the faith in spite of everything that might uh, impede 
their sense of uh, loyalty to the church. And I think we got good responses. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the things we, we point out in the introduction to this package is that there is a variety and complexity to the stories of why people come or leave or stay, and you kind of uh, mentioned that. And I, I wonder if you want to highlight two or three of those stories uh, to get a sense of that variety. I'll maybe mention four, which can be broken in, into two pairs. Mm-hmm. There was the piece by Barbara McClay mm-hmm. and, and the piece by uh, Helene Stepinski, And these are personal pieces, one by a young woman who recently became Catholic and another by a woman who lost her faith or decided to part ways with the church because of an experience she had when she was a volunteer with the Jesuit Volunteer Corps in Alaska. And these are both very personal pieces that are about experiences of sinfulness um, in others and in oneself and and how they relate to the the grand creedal claims that the church makes and the authority that the church Mm -hmm. pretends to have. And then we also had uh, pieces by New York Times columnist Ross Douthat and uh, longtime Commonwealth contributor Jack Miles. And these were uh, more abstract pieces. These were pieces about the logic of Catholic ecclesiology, what it seems to mm. require and what it seems to allow. And it, Jack Miles' ecclesiological thinking shifted over the years, and, he, uh, and that's why he left the church. And for, for Douthat, it's really ecclesiological considerations that make Mm. him feel as if having become Catholic, there's really no alternative as long as he remains a Christian. Mm. This is where he'll stay. Mm -hmm. This is the church for him because there's really no option that that doesn't contradict something important to his sense of what Christianity is about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And just a reminder too to listeners, we'll be hearing from Helene Stepinski herself as well as Ross Douthat and Dorothy Fortenberry in a little bit. Um, Matt, we also note in the uh, introduction that what all of our contributors agree on, if nothing else— is that the question of whether to belong to the church and believe in its claims is not a trivial one. Uh, Now, with a project like this, we're not necessarily sure what we're going to get from writers, right? And yet what comes through in each of these, in each of these contributions, is a sense of deep and careful consideration of the decisions made. I think we hope for responses like this, but I guess, I don't know, was it something we necessarily expected? Well, we didn't know exactly what we would get. Uh, I only asked... um, people who I knew would send us something interesting. Because this project was so long in the making, uh, we could take our time and be a little bit picky about Mm. uh, our contributors. So we started out with a list of maybe half a dozen names of people that we thought would be good to to get the project underway, and then we added names over time. Was I surprised? I was surprised by some, certainly, uh, because there are some very personal uh, revelations in some of the essays. And even with things that aren't necessarily personal, like the, the Douthat essay, for example, I think some people who have read Ross Douthat's writings about the church in, in the New York Times and elsewhere might be surprised to see that you know, Ross has uh, no intention of leaving the Catholic Church no matter what happens and that his uh, sense of disappointment with this pontificate um, has not really changed his, his sense of uh, confidence in the Catholic Church or his sense of uh, – or his contentment there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think most of the essays that we that, that arrived were, were excellent and none were bad. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, uh, I, I think uh, like any other collection of, of I don't know how many were there, 10 essays, mm-hmm. it's a little bit uneven. Some are better than others. Some are shorter than others. Um, but I think they're all, they're all pretty good and they work well as a group, which is exactly what we were hoping for. They, uh, they gain in significance by being next to other essays. 
that reach very different conclusions. Yeah, and I, I think we should just sort of uh, make a note here to thank all the contributors, too, for, for what they did. You know, I'm hearing some things from, from readers and, and from subscribers. What are you hearing, Matt? Are you getting any responses from folks? Uh, most of the responses I've heard have been, have been good ones. People were curious about the project. I, not surprisingly, perhaps, the, the most favorable response seems to be to the most intimate and personal pieces. Mm. Uh, those are pieces where people, many readers uh, have identified with the author, uh, have had similar experiences, and were gratified to, to find their, their own experience of, of Catholic life reflected in our pages. Um, so often, you know, uh, Commonweal is dealing with public policy, uh, church politics, mm-hmm. lofty intellectual matters, or, you know, practical matters, but not necessarily uh, – you know, the quick of the faith. And in these essays, we're reminded, again, why we're all in this together and, and why we persist. And, and we're also reminded that the stakes could not be more important and that this is a choice that, mm-hmm. that we make to, to keep our baptismal vows, to, to go to, to Mass every Sunday or, or some Sundays. <laughs> uh, it's not something that we have to do. Uh, and if we're only doing it by force of habit, then we're not doing it the way the church wants us to, the way Christ invites us to. Thanks, Matt, and uh, thanks for shepherding this project through. Thank you. Ross Douthat is a New York Times columnist and the author of several books, including To Change the Church, Pope Francis, and the Future of Catholicism. He has an essay in the December 1st issue of Commonweal about why, despite his disagreements with the current pope, he has no plans to leave the Catholic Church. Roth, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. In your essay, you present an elaborate argument against two alternatives that seem to be available to conservative Catholics unhappy with the direction of the Church under Pope Francis. In fact, the argument's too elaborate for us to cover in detail, but maybe you could say a few words about what those alternative options are and, and why you reject them. Sure. I'll try and, I'll try and be non-elaborate. Basically, it seems to me that if you are a conservative Catholic or traditionalist Catholic, if you prefer, troubled by the direction of the Francis Pontificate, some of the you know documents and controversies surrounding divorce and remarriage and so on, and you are not you know inspired by these doubts to give up your basic Catholic perspective entirely and go become a hard shell Baptist somewhere in the Appalachians. Then, then you really have two options. Uh, one option is to consider joining the Orthodox Church um, or one of the Orthodox churches, I suppose I should say. And the other option is the kind of internal exile um, that, it, at least that's the term that I use to describe um, the Society of St. Pius X, which um, is a group that has managed to continue to profess loyalty to the Pope while um, not actually being governed by the papacy. So those, those seem like the two options. And without going into too much detail, um, I guess my view of the Orthodox option is in part that it would be a little peculiar for someone perturbed by the possibility of a change in Catholic teaching on marriage and divorce to join a church where that teaching was already made give or take a thousand years ago, right? You're not actually going to find the sort of solution to the particular dilemma that has vexed a lot of conservative Catholics in the Orthodox Church. 
But then the larger point I, I make is that at least in my own thinking, you know, you could talk yourself into the idea that Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism are in fact roughly equal in their claims. Um, you know that they both have legitimate claims to represent um, the church going back to going back to the apostles. But e- even if you get to that point, as as a Catholic in the United States or Western Europe or indeed most of the world in which Catholicism exists, it still seems to me to be the case that if if Orthodoxy and Rome were in some in some way co-equal, unless you were actually a Russian or, you know, someone, someone sort of born into a culture where the Orthodox patriarchates have authority, it, do, it still doesn't make sense to jump to swim the Bosporus. The, the, the Catholic Church, even, in, even if you end up thinking that its claims are more limited, would still be the church for the Western world. You know, it would still be the, the Pope would still be the patriarch of Rome and all the rest. But what about what about the other option then? Joining a, a traditionalist Catholic group that breaks away in some way, a quasi schismatic group. Well, I think they would say that they aren't schismatic, right? That's the the whole theory and idea of the SSPX in their own perspective is that they aren't schismatic. And in fact, I think you can you know you can make some arguments about them, some of the moves that Rome has made over the last ten or fifteen years that would partially validate that claim. At the same time. You know, it it doesn't seem to me that in making that kind of move, I mean, it's it's one thing to say, oh, you might go to a SSPX chapel now and again, again, for sort of liturgical reasons or something like that. But to move yourself into a situation where you are effectively under the authority of um, whichever bishop happens to be running the SSPX, it's to exchange the scripturally attested, historically rooted authority of the Bishop of Rome for a form of authority that doesn't have any kind of historical attestation, that doesn't have the promises of Jesus behind it. And you have to assume in making that move, ultimately, you're basically saying, I know what tradition says, Rome has broken with Catholic tradition, therefore I'm staying with tradition. But even if you think that Rome has broken with tradition, tradition is not self-interpreting. Uh, if it were self-interpreting, you wouldn't have the sort of mini schisms that beset the traditionalist world, right? So you still ultimately are putting your trust in some kind of authority. And, you know, however many doubts a conservative Catholic might have about sort of the state of the papacy or the state of papal teaching and so on, it still doesn't seem like the move to sort of really put yourself under the authority of Bishop Fillet, as lovely and holy a man as he may be, makes all that much logical sense. You have more than one disagreement with Pope Francis, but I think it's fair to say your main criticism has to do with his suggestion that some divorced and remarried Catholics who don't have an annulment should be able to receive communion anyway. Uh, In your essay, you recommend that Catholics on your side of that controversy combine, quote, disputation and submission until time and providence either vindicate your position or prove through a slow accretion of evidence that you were simply wrong, close quote. I wonder what you think it would look like for time to prove you wrong. I wonder that myself. I mean, I I, I think that at the very least, it would mean, well, let, let me put it this way. And this, again, relates to why I'm doubtful about the, the, the theory and practice of the Society of St. Pius X. You know, 
to join the Catholic Church is to join an institution that claims to be the Church of Jesus Christ in a pretty obvious and straightforward way, that Jesus picked Peter and built his church upon that rock, and the papacy is still that rock today, and all the rest of it. Now, that could be wrong, but that's the theory. And the more that conservative disputation with particular papal papal decisions and papal rulings ends up seeming like a kind of irrelevant minor sect within the larger global church, the more doubtful one should be on any kind of Catholic terms that that disputation, that disagreement is correct, I guess. So I don't have sort of a like, you know, here's the year 2077 when conservative critics of Amoris Laetitia will have to admit that they were wrong. But I think that defenders of Pope Francis and allies of Pope Francis who argue that, you know, this this teaching will be gradually accepted by the church and disagreement will fade to the margins and so on. I, I don't think that argument is dispositive now, but over a let's, you know, over a multi-decade and multi-century time horizon, it might be. It might be dispositive. I don't I'm skeptical of the sort of the side of Catholic traditionalism that basically wants to claim that there's a kind of church in exile. And if there is such a church in exile, I'm skeptical that God would allow it to remain in exile for 500 or 600 years, let's say. At that point, you're into the territory of effectively Protestant views of the church, I think. And then saying that that's a Catholic view sort of becomes untenable. So, um, you know, Fra- Pope Francis's line about, you know, time is greater than space and, and all the rest. If you want to, in- you could you could pull that line, I think, to make the case that the clearer a change becomes and the longer it is taught without crisis or rupture, um, the more people who consider this, uh, themselves Catholic in a consistent way would need to accept it. I wonder if your disappointment about this pontificate has changed the way you feel about your conversion. Uh, I think most of our readers will find your essay logically compelling, but I also think a lot of them will come away from it with the impression that you remain in the church because you feel stuck, because there's nowhere else to go. Do you feel trapped, or or do you just feel liberated from the anxiety of having to constantly revisit your original decision to become Catholic? Um, You know, stuck... I, I don't. I don't feel. I don't feel you stuck. stuck but not not in the. No, no, that's a good word. I, I I think that's a reasonable. That's a reasonable reading, reading of the essay. I mean, I think the 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 essay's not its weakness, but its limit is that it's trying to think about this in terms of you know sort of an intellectual problem and intellectual consistency and and all of these things, when in fact to the extent that it's about me and my conversion and my experience of Catholic faith, there's a lot more to my experience of Catholicism, believe it or not, than what I write about the papacy and what I write, the arguments that I get into with journalists and theologians about Amoris Laetitia. In that sense, I don't think I'm stuck. I'm very happy to be Catholic. I think I'm in the right place and more people should be in this place. But in terms of the intellectual issue, the intellectual questions, there is a sense of like, yeah, there isn't, there isn't anywhere else to go. And maybe there are more, more contradictions here than I had thought or hoped at one point. We'll find out. Right. So are you as happy now as you were before some of the um, 
the perplexities of uh, this pontificate perturbed your intellectual uh, satisfaction with the, with the church as a system? I mean, honestly, the most, you know, the primary way that I've experienced Catholicism over the last five or six years is as a father of children, as someone I've been struggling with some chronic illness, um, you know, things, things like that have loomed a lot larger in my everyday experience of religious faith and of Catholicism. And so I don't, when, when I think about my own happiness or lack thereof, I, you know, I would say there was about a three month period when it was around the first synod on the family, when I was genuinely perturbed in sort of my own psyche um, about this stuff. But at this point, you know, I'm, I'm unhappy with the state of the church on like 16 different levels, as, as are many people, or, you know, you wouldn't be running, running fine essays in this issue about people leaving the church as well as coming and staying. Um, and obviously everything that's happened with sex abuse, really, since I wrote this piece for you in draft form, has been perturbing, disquieting, horrifying, depressing, all of those kind of words. So I'm less happy with the state of the church by far than I was um, at the end of the Benedict pontificate for reasons, for all kinds of reasons, Amoris Laetitia among them. Um, but I would say I'm just as happy being a Catholic as I was then. Thank you again for joining us, Ross. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for uh, letting me ramble about ecclesiology in your pages. Our pleasure. I'll be talking to Helene Stepinski. And just a advisory, the upcoming discussion may not be appropriate for all listeners. I'm here with Helene Stepinski, who is a contributor to our special December 1st issue, Why We Came, Why We Left, Why We Stayed. Helene is the author of three books, most recently, A Murder in Matera, and a frequent contributor to the New York Times. Uh, Helene, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Dominic. So you wrote a, a very moving account, a very personal account, about your decision to leave the Catholic Church, and you detail it. In, well, with kind of agonizing detail. But I want to maybe give listeners a sense of not only what happened to you, uh, what you experienced once you got to Alaska, but how, how you grew up and what your, what your relationship to the Catholic Church was. So maybe a little bit of your background would be helpful. Absolutely. Um, I grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey, which was a working class community. My dad was a checker at a warehouse. Um, my mom worked at the DMV. Um, no one I had ever known or grown up with had ever been a writer. So it was, it was a working class situation. I had bus driver uncles and, you know, waitress aunts. And um, everybody went to church, everybody. And you were defined by your parish. So where you lived generally, you know, had a few parishes in it. And depending on your ethnicity, usually you went to a certain parish. I, I went to Our Lady of Chestahova, which was always very difficult to spell. We had to learn to spell that in kindergarten. I went to Mass every Sunday, either 9 o'clock Mass, which was the children's Mass, or noon, which was when we'd rather go because it was later in the day. And uh, my father collected the money during Mass. My mother was very involved with the parish and the PTA. I was taught by nuns most of my upbringing. I had a lot of good nuns, but several very bad nuns <laughs> who I've written about in the past in other um, situations. We had one nun in fourth grade who told us that the Russians had a button that they could push and we would all be obliterated, you know, one of those nuns. 
anyway, but for the most part, they were terrific teachers and great women. And um, I love the nuns. I still love the nuns. So that was my upbringing. You know, I, I continued to go to mass weekly until I was well into my teen years. I went to a Catholic all girls high school, wore a uniform my whole life, my whole young life. It probably wasn't until I went to college, really, uh, that I started to question the Catholic Church. I went to NYU. It was the first time I was ever exposed to people from different faiths. Uh, so it was kind of mind-blowing. I had a class on world religions, um, really great class, uh, with a guy named James Carse. I think he's still out there. So I just, you know, I started to question things. And my biggest issues were the 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 stances that the church took, you know, on birth control and women in the church and things like that. So, I, you know, I had problems with it. And I, I kind of slowed down and going to church and things like that. But, you know, I was working as a reporter. I, I studied journalism at NYU, went on to become a reporter at my hometown paper. And I was covering all kinds of social justice issues. It was frustrating. I mean, I, I worked there for three years. I wrote a column for them. And I tackled everything from, you know, AIDS to toxic waste to the mafia to homelessness to you name it. I covered it because Jersey City was a pretty rough place to grow up. And so I was going to join the Peace Corps, I think. And I checked it out. I was like, I don't know. Do I want to go to a far-flung place like Africa or something? I don't even I don't know how to build bridges. I don't know. You know, <laughs> what would I do? You know? And I had a roommate at the time and a good friend named Sarah, uh, Sarah Eckel, who's also a writer, who um, had gone to Fordham in the Bronx. And she was connected with the, the Jesuit community and, and knew about the JVC. And when I had started talking about the Peace Corps, she said, well, what about the JVC? And I had never even heard of it. So, you know, I looked into it and it really seemed to fit the bill for me. You know, I had been raised Catholic. I still sort of considered myself Catholic. Um, the JVC seemed pretty progressive. Um, I always loved the Jesuits because they were smart thinking Catholics and questioned things. So I sort of threw it out there and said, OK, well, let's see. So I applied and they had a great position in Nome, Alaska. So you arrive at Nome and your assignment is to work on the the little radio station that's in Nome, Alaska. And what was what was the name of the station and and uh, how, how did that all sort of unfold? Sure. It was called KNOM. We used to joke it was monk spelled backwards. You know, it was run by lay people, but it had been founded by a priest named Jim Poole, which who was like a celebrity up there. He wasn't there anymore. He had moved to the lower 48, but he had founded the station and um, we played regular music, but we also were, they ran prayers on the air. They did a nightly rosary. They ran sermons by Poole, you know, inspirational spots by Poole, things like that. And it was it was real service to the community in a lot of ways. I mean, because, you know, it's hard to get around up there in the winter. And this was before the dawn of cell phones, you know, and people couldn't really get in touch with each other. So the radio was this conduit of information. So so we did provide a, a, an important service up there. But, you know, the whole the the spiritual hole in my life was not really being filled, I have to say. I mean, it was filled through like nature and going out into onto the tundra and things like that and dog sledding and being alone in the middle of nowhere. You know, I, I kind of found myself a lot of way in a lot of ways that way, but the church there just was not very engaging. And the, the, the pastor was not, he just was not a very charismatic guy. And it, it just, it was not a great place as far as the Catholic church goes. I felt like another distance from it really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yet, being there, as you said, you sort of uh, did manage to, I think, find certain satisfactions in some of the other encounters that you had. And you have a very 
sort of a vivid recounting of your encounter with a young woman in one of the uh, smaller villages outside of Nome. Could you talk about that a little? Yeah. What we would do is um, I would travel to all the Eskimo villages to write, to write stories because I was the news director. So I really traveled around a lot. And that was really the most wonderful part of the job because you got to meet these people in these remote places. So one time I went to, it was towards the end of my stint there. It was in May, I think. Uh, I went to a place called St. Mary's. It was an Eskimo village. And Poole, Reverend Poole, had started the station there like in the late 50s. Uh, it wasn't even a radio station yet. It was like a PA system that he had set up. And so it was this sort of sacred place for KNOM, you know. And so I went there to cover this alcohol referendum story. Basically, the, the villagers there were voting on whether or not to have alcohol anymore because uh, alcohol is a real problem up there. So um, so years later, you know, I go back to New York and I go back to the church. Eventually, I, I wind up um, baptizing my children in the Catholic church. I'm in Brooklyn. And so I'm on board again. And then uh, a story breaks that Reverend Poole, Jim Poole, uh, had been molesting Eskimo girls uh, for decades. Helene, what year would this have been now? Um, I'm trying to remember what year it broke. Paulina, my daughter was a year old. So that was 2004, uh, I guess. Yes. Our daughter's at the same age. So, you know, she was, she was a year old. So I had given it the old college try. I was back at church and then the story breaks. And how, how, how did you hear about it? Actually, I, you know, I, one of the great things about the JVC and about being a gnome was the people that I became friends with who were also in the JVC. Every one of them is just a wonderful person and I'm still great friends with them. And one of my friends said, did you see the story about pool? I guess it was email, you know, and sent me a link or whatever. And there was all this chatter about it on the JVC. I guess, I don't know what you would call it. Uh, the sort of the network that was out there. Yeah, there was like a, a, a room, a chat room that a lot of the JVC people were on. And uh, I had never, I, I didn't really go to that room much, but I did have all these friends. And um, so they alerted me to it and everybody was kind of in shock. Some of my friends from there had gone back to the church. Some were still estranged from the church, but that sort of was a bomb, a real bomb. And people just, it just blew everybody out of the water. What were some of the details that were emerging, Helene? It's so awful. You know, I don't even like to think about it, but some of the things were um, he had raped a girl while she was in the hospital. He was having an affair with a mother and then raped the daughter at the same time. You know, just crazy stuff. Masturbating in front of a bunch of kids when his mother walked in. His mother's name was Luella, and she had been the first KNOM volunteer. And our house that we lived in, the house at KNOM was named after her, Luella. And when you hear something like that, I'm still getting chills about it. It makes me get upset. You know, this community that you're a part of, all these little details about this place that you lived in is now completely tainted. And it it was just, we didn't, none of us have recovered, I have to say, you know. I thought leaving the church would help me recover, but in reality, it hasn't, you know, because I still read all the stuff that's going on in the Catholic Church, and I'm still just as mad. And I thought if I walked away, I could sort of cut off some of that anger, but that hasn't worked so so well, which is why I wrote this essay, I think. I'm just sort of sort of trying to work through it, you know, and find some catharsis because Poole died this past spring, and one of my dreams was to go and visit him. He was up up in um, Washington State, and he was, you know, a Supposed, he was supposed to be under lock and key at some home, but I'm sure, you know, who knows what the situation was. But uh, he was allowed to wander around for years, even after they knew what he was doing. 
one of my dreams was to go up there and knock on his door and just punch him, you know, because I was so, so angry and still am angry. And so are the other people, you know, that I'm still in touch with. A lot of them, like I said, have left the church. So, Helene, you, you, you mentioned something in your piece, too, about the fact that a number of the volunteers at the radio station continued almost to sort of work on Poole's behalf, even after all of this was going on, uh, in terms of having to, you know, send out recordings of his messages or, or, or homilies. That occurred as well, right? While we were there and didn't know about what he was doing and he was gone, they continued to play his sermons and his prayers on the air. And um, not only that, but we had a signature machine at the station that we used to sign letters uh, for fundraising with his name on it. It was, and, and so the diocese knew what he was doing at this point. They had known for a long time. And so we're up there and we're sending his voice and his name into the public and, you know, it, 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 I felt like I was part of this terrible conspiracy. You know, I, 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 in, this, in the essay, I say, you know, it, it felt like the church should be brought up on racketeering charges. You know, they, they knew this was wrong and they're, let, they're not telling us what's going on, first of all, which is normal, right? But they're letting us send his sermon out there, sermons out there, so that the girls that he abused have to hear his voice on the radio and I'm pushing the button on those sermons. Right. And, and, you know, you mentioned the fact, too, that this radio station really was a mode of communication, if not the only mode of communication. So it was almost unavoidable, I would imagine. It played everywhere, everywhere. You went into a restaurant, it was on in the background. You go to a store, it's on in the background. Everybody's house had it on. If you're in your car, that's the only thing you can listen to. You know, it was everywhere. So, yeah, there was no escaping his voice. So it, it just still gives me chills thinking about it. Sure. So, Helene, your, your piece appeared on our website mid-November. And um, I'm wondering if you've gotten any reaction to it. Have you heard from people that you were acquainted with in Alaska or other members of the JV community or, or other folks? Yeah, I got a, a, an incredible reaction to it, actually. People that I served with in Alaska wrote to me, fellow Catholics who are pretty upset about what's been happening in the church, got in touch with me. I've gotten lots of emails, lots of notes from people. Someone from from Alaska sent me a message that they had sent to the JVC on behalf of a bunch of women who worked for the JVC, asking them to reach out to them and to try and heal the community. And they haven't heard back from them. You know, and I, I'm still angry at the JVC as well, because they, they pulled out of Nome. Um, the year after we left, and I'm pretty sure it was because of pool, because this is this was all sort of breaking at the time. Um, but they never said anything to us about it. We were worried that we were one of the reasons they were pulling out of Nome because we were sort of considered the bad JVs. We used to drink in the local saloons and things like that. So we were worried that we had damaged the, the JVC's reputation, and we were part of the reason. So for years, we're walking around guilty, thinking we killed the JVC in Nome when, in fact, you know, this stuff was going on with pool, and they knew full well about it. And I still want to write a letter, my own personal letter to the JVC and say, you know, you really blew it, guys, you know, and you continue to blow it. You know, you're not out there doing any outreach for us. We are really scarred and no one has done anything. Helene, do you have any sense or belief that you might somehow find yourself one day returning to the church? I can't imagine it. I'm just, I'm so angry and I'm 53 at this point. So when, when is it going to happen? You know, <laughs> in 20 years, I don't know if they cleaned up their act, but I don't know if it's possible at this point. I don't, I just think, I mean, the people on the ground are great people. You know what I mean? I go to, if I do go to church, you know, the people who are at church and the generally the priests are, are good people, 
the nuns are terrific, you know, the deacons, people like that, the people, the foot soldiers, you know, but I just feel like the hierarchy is so tainted and so corrupt and so evil in a lot of ways. And, you know, I compared it to the mafia. You know, I said when I was covering the mafia in New Jersey, my first job, they never pretended to be anything else. But the Catholic Church, you know, has been preaching to us about sin and forgiveness for years and years. And they're really not on board, you know, and I just I can't put my money in my those baskets so that they can defend these priests. I can't you know, I just can't be a part of it. I'm just it's too toxic for me. And I, I mean, I hope. There is some closure for me. I really do. But I don't really see it. I mean, do you? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Sad to say. So. Helene, thank you for taking the time to talk today. Thank you. Thank for, thanks for having me. I'm here with Dorothy Fordenberry, playwright and screenwriter, who is currently in her third season as a writer and producer on Hulu's award-winning adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale. Dorothy also contributed a piece to our collection in our December 1st issue, Why We Came, Why We Left, Why We Stayed. Dorothy's was titled Why I Stay. Uh, Dorothy, thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm really eager to talk to you because I was uh, really taken with your piece and particularly with the central image you use, go big or go home. What do you have in mind when you look at your decision to remain in the church through this idea, through this image? Yeah, I think for me, the largeness of the church is one of its most important qualities. Um, The idea of being part of a body of, you know, a billion people is both terrifying, but also really inspirational for me. And I think my decision to stay in the church feels like a commitment to a ton of people. It feels like a commitment to a giant institution. And I think the largeness of the church, both in sheer scope and size in terms of buildings and people and wealth, but also largeness in terms of what I think the church asks of us. Um, I think that's partly why I started with the idea of uh, transubstantiation. It's why I, I think the church is a large commitment. It's a large body and it's a big ask. And I think for me, as someone who's trying to figure out her relationship to religion, I get something out of the sheer magnitude of it, a religious practice that was easier and smaller and more tailor-made to me and more sort of handcrafted, small batch artisanal religion, I think would be a lot of times more pleasurable, but I think ultimately less meaningful to me. Yeah. You know, that uh, reminds me of a, of a line from your piece that, that stuck out and you said, you know, there are things I get out of the church that I don't get any, anywhere else. And, and you've kind of touched on a couple of these things, but I'm also curious as to how and when did you start to realize this? Sure. Um, I mean, I I grew up in the church. I'm cradle Catholic, baptized, First Communion. The first time I really remember wrestling with this was for confirmation. And I was in eighth grade. And I remember my mom didn't invite anybody and kept it really low key because I think she felt unsure up until the last minute if I was going to go through with it. And I was unsure up until the last minute if I was going to go through with it. And she didn't want you know, the pressure of like, oh, your aunt and uncle and blah, 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 like feeling like I had to. So she could tell I was not sure. And I think that was the first time I really wasn't, I was on the edge. 
And I remember the priest at my church that was Father Brendan, and I talked to Father Brendan, and he was great. And we had a great conversation. And I think often that like if Father Brendan had just been like lame or, you know, hadn't been at work that day and I had gotten somebody else, um, my whole life might be really different because I, he really heard what I was saying. He really took my concerns seriously. He responded as someone who believed that the church could change and grow and that it would. And that was really important for me to hear. So I got confirmed. But I was not particularly observant or practicing in high school. Um, if anything, I went, I went to a Quaker high school. And I think that's a huge part of actually why I am still Catholic, because it was a chance to be a part of a totally different religious practice. And for me, for who I was in high school, it was a great fit. It kept me thinking about spirituality. It kept me thinking about looking at other people and trying to see God in them, um, but in a really different way. So I think when I went off to college, I was kind of like, well, I'll, I'll do something, but I don't know what. And, you know, went to the church that was near my dorm, that was sort of a, a mainline Protestant church, uh, went to some Episcopalian churches, and through college, found myself coming back to the the Catholic church on campus I don't even totally know how, um, but but I, I I kept going and I went to college in Boston and this was around 2000. So I ended up being right in the middle of watching a church wrestle with, you know, all of the abuse scandal, you know, information that came out then. And again, I you know, luck of the draw, there happened to be the priests at my parish were incredibly open and humble and brutally honest about what was coming out and how horrible it was. And I think, again, if I had been somewhere where the vibe had been different um, and people hadn't been so great, I think I would have said, like, this is garbage and walked away. But I watched that community wrestle with it and in a weird way came away kind of impressed with, with how they were trying to handle something so horrible. Then after college, I spent a year in Haiti. And that, I think, was also just a formative year in terms of uh, me sort of getting over myself, which I think is a lot of what I, I it's something that I get out of the church that I don't get other places. I, I think the devaluing of myself as an individual and the notion that I'm part of this big, messy collection of humans definitely is something that was hammered home. I think I came out of that year really appreciative of things that positioned me in an equal relationship with other people and not kind of as a like, do, 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 you know, here I am to help. I'm the rescuer. And that's something that I get out of church. You know, I, when I'm sitting next to people in church, you know, all the stuff that I like to think is special and charming about myself is not relevant. And that's rare. There aren't a lot of spaces where I feel like you get to just be a person next to another person. And it doesn't matter, you know, how educated you are. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter how fancy your shoes are. You're just kind of existing in parallel humanity. Yeah. You know, uh, Dorothy, you, you speak about some of these sort of positive shaping experiences and, and I guess 
realizations or understandings. And then in your piece, you come around to talking about the alienation you began to feel along around 2012, when the leadership conference of women religious was being investigated. And then uh, there was this, uh, the fortnight for freedom was all, you know, big thing and being promoted. Talk about that a little. That was probably the loneliest I've ever felt in the church. You know, I was a, I just had uh, my first daughter then. I was a you know young mom and I felt so not seen and not met sort of where I was. Like, I really felt like I was like, look, I'm trying you guys. Like I'm, I'm showing up and it is not easy to make it to church, you know, with an infant whose schedule is all over the place and I'm exhausted and I'm working and sort of, I'm hauling myself here. I'm open to a conversation about what does it mean to be a woman in the church right now? And I felt like I was met with such condescension and judgment. And, you know, I just, I really didn't feel like the realities of my life were seen or appreciated. And it was also sort of that vibe of like, well, you know, if you end up leaving, it's fine. We'll probably have a better church without you anyway. That, that sort of smaller, purer, you know, let's get rid of pruning the branches. Yeah. Yes. And I, I felt like I was being pruned and I really right. resented it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was, it was really hard. Yeah. I, th- I think that's another sort of roads diverging in a wood moment where I could have, I could definitely see a life for myself where I, I would have stepped away or I would have found something else. Cause I just, I really felt you know, as an individual, and then also just for women in general, I just felt like, look, we are keeping your whole thing afloat. Like we are doing all of this work. We are serving on committees and we are, you know, making the snacks and we are, you know, teaching CCD and we are just, you know, this labor force and to be dismissed and to be told, you know, how to think and feel just really, really got on my nerves. Yeah. And and where are you with that today if I, if I might ask? You know, I'm still I'm still here. I, I do feel like some practical things have changed. The uh, investigation into women religious has stopped. I think also in some ways for me in this particular moment, you know, in this sort of odd political time that we're in, I really have found the church to be better at handling it than um, other groups and other people. And, you know, like I went to a, an interfaith prayer service late November, 2016 at Dolores Mission. And that felt like exactly where I wanted to be, you know, in that, that idea of home, it felt like, you know, it's a, a tiny little church and it was pouring outside and we were all, you know, 200 people were crammed in together singing and praying and basically saying like, we've got each other's backs. And that was one of the most profound and moving sort of things I've ever been a part of. So that mattered to me. And I brought, and I brought my daughter um, and I brought my oldest daughter and I just sort of said to her, like, this is what we do. You know, this this is where we go when, when things are hard this is where we find community and this is where we find meaning. You mentioned uh, bringing your daughter along to this. And I I, I think I want to get back to something that also really came through in your essay. A big part of it centers around parenting and family. 
And I know in the past you've spoken about what it means to try to raise children Catholic, to, to say nothing of simply raising children at this point in history. But are there specific things you try to do or, or I guess try not to? I mean, something that comes through in your piece is an awareness of the inevitable messiness of things. And you, you've already touched on this a little bit in this talk. You know, but this idea that there, you know, they, there's an impossibility kind of of not having a clear cut answer or solution to every challenge or question. Yeah, I, I think it's a challenge. I mean, I think what I try to do is create the space for them to be able to say that's crazy, and for me to be able to say, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's really, whew, yeah, sure is. Um, you know, we're going to keep doing it. We're going to keep going, but. Yeah, these these stories are nuts. It's it's nuts to be dead and to come back to life, and it's you know nuts that we can eat a person. And you know, I'm I'm gonna let the sort of lunacy of that exist and acknowledge it, and then try to explain you know why I find it meaningful, but also not try to not try to shape their responses. You know, when when my daughters were baptized, there was a, a prayer that I said for both of them, and it was that, you know, I hope that they continue to find the church a place that they can be themselves, and that's a prayer for them, but that's also a prayer for the church. You know, I want the church to be a place where whoever they are, they feel like they can be comfortable and accepted and loved. And that's a prayer. Like that's, I don't, I don't know that that will happen. I can't know that any life that they live will make them feel that way. All I can hope is, is that the church, you know, grow in its love and acceptance to be able to hold them within it. But I don't know. Uh, I don't know that it will. And I, I am very clear eyed about the fact that they may grow up to look at the church and be like, what is this? I can't do this. And I will say, I get it. I love you. You know, like you're, you're going until you're 18. Cause that's, you know, what we're doing. But the second you turn 19, you don't ever have to step foot in again. And I will respect and appreciate, you know, whatever choice you make. Dorothy's essay, why I stay appeared in the December 1st issue, uh, which featured our special package, Why We Came, Why We Left, Why We Stayed. Dorothy, thanks so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. You can read the entire series of contributions to our Why We Came, Why We Left, Why We Stayed feature on our website. We're also looking for listeners to tell us about their decisions to come into the church, to leave it, or to stay. Write your story up in about 300 words or less and email it to us at editors at commonwealmagazine.org. We'll select some to run on our website or maybe even to feature here on the Commonweal Podcast. Commonweal is the leading independent Catholic journal of public affairs, religion, literature, and the arts. We offer a number of subscription options. Log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the subscribe link.
Every year at this time, Commonweal features its Christmas Critics Roundup, a look at the books our writers and editors have read in the course of the year and some reasons for why they're recommending them. In 2018, space was given over to four Commonweal editors, yours truly included, and we thought we'd take the book discussion out of the pages and onto the podcast. As an added bonus, you'll also find out what some of us are reading now and are planning to read next. So I'm here with Commonweal's associate editor, Matthew Sittman, uh, Commonweal's digital editor, Griffin Olenek, and Commonweal's managing editor, Kate Lucky. And we're here to sort of pick up on our feature in the December 1st issue, our, our annual Christmas Critics Roundup. And I think in some ways, Matt, you were saying as we sat down here, this is kind of the perfect Commonweal project. Yeah, yeah. Even when we first started even thinking about doing a podcast, we had joked about just putting a microphone down at our lunch table and recording our conversations because often at lunch and even just stopping in one another's cubicles at work, we talk a lot about the movies we're watching, the music we're listening to, but probably most of all, the books we're reading. Or the books and, that are piled on our or, desks. Or the books that we hope to read, yeah. And so in a lot of ways, I would say this Christmas Critics in this issue, I think since I've been here, this is the most editors of the magazine we've had in the feature. So that sort of provided a good opportunity for us to talk about, the four of us to sit down and talk about why we picked the books we picked, how we like to read, what's on our minds in terms of the books we might be reading in the future. And of course, a little bit about what we actually wrote in the Christmas Critics this year. And one of the great things too, I think, while it was sort of heartening to me to see was that among the four of us, there's kind of a wide range of selections in this in this Christmas Critics. Yeah. And uh, Matt, I think, uh, well, why don't I start with you since you wrote about a writer that you've really come to love over the years. Right. Yeah. I, I've never written about Edmund White, but he is one of my favorite writers. I've read a lot of his novels, but I really love his four memoirs. He's written four of them. I talk about all of them, at least briefly, in my review. And they really stretch from him moving to New York as a young graduate of the University of Michigan in, in the early 1960s. He was a gay guy who grew up in the Midwest and moved to New York in the 60s through his latest memoir, which just came out this summer, actually. And so did you rush out and grab that right away? And this is sort of what lined you up to do this for Christmas Critics? You're just like, hey, it's a great time to do it? Or how do you... Yeah, well, I had read... I had actually thought about writing something longer that took off from Edmund White's memoir that came out this summer, which is called The, the Unpunished Vice about his life in reading. It's a memoir of reading, his life in reading. And I, so I thought about writing something longer about it. And then when it came time to do Christmas Critics this year, I just realized that often when we do Christmas Critics, we try to have some sort of theme, something that holds them together, and that Edmund White's four memoirs might just be a nice, simple little group of books to talk about together. I found myself, since being an editor at the magazine, being extremely interested in memoirs and diaries of writers or mm -hmm. by writers mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. kind of trying to get in their heads and understand something about their process, about how they created the great essays and novels and books that they did. And one thing about The Unpunished Vice is that because it's about a great novelist's reading life, mm. he really is very explicit about what he borrowed from this novelist or author or what he took from this particular writer or how he learned about this or that mm. technique. Mm -hmm. And so it's really a very interesting 
book in that sense, if you're an aspiring mm-hmm. writer, to kind of it's it's almost like a like you're taking a seminar with him. And White sure. did teach seminars for mm-hmm. years at, at both Johns Hopkins and Princeton in their creative writing programs. So in a lot of ways, I think it's some of his almost lecture notes distilled. Mm-hmm. And and he's a very promiscuous reader. He talks a lot about French literature, like Colette. He talks a lot about Japanese literature. Mm-hmm. These mm-hmm. kind of unexpected byways that mm-hmm. sort of taught him something. And so for me, as a writer and as an editor, the book was especially interesting. And and as I said, I've just found in general writers' memoirs and diaries to be things I've been mo- especially interested since working at Commonwealth. Yeah, and I like the idea of sort of promiscuous reading too. And I mean, so there's sort of a serendipity to this, right, Griffin? I think, you know, what was the book that you sort of featured in your Christmas Critics? I chose two. Both are about New York City. The first was Open City by Teju Cole, and the other was Patriot Number no. 1 by Lauren Hilgers. And I spent a lot of time thinking about New York just because this was the, the first time I'd ever lived in New York City. And uh, it's interesting that Matt brings up the concept of memoir. Teju Cole's book, Open City, is written kind of like a memoir, but it's actually a work of fiction. So he's able to kind of sublimate a lot of his own autobiographical interests into a fictional narrative with an alter ego and everything. So it's a bit like, for me, uh, you know, it's like a modern Augustine, but it kind of works in reverse in that the confessions, uh, you have this narrative of Augustine knowing that he's bad and wanting to become good. Mm -hmm. But what Mm -hmm. I found so interesting about Open City is you read it, and this is a guy that he thinks he's so good, and he comes to discover that he's bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think a lot of people have noticed that who've read the, who've read Open City. I think some people have commented, uh, you know, to that fact. Yeah, I hear it's not too popular with teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just a disclaimer: I have a 15 year old daughter who also read Open City this past summer, and she's a little bit in, in disagreement with Griffin's take on it in certain ways. I heard that she threw the magazine across <laughs> the room when she saw the review. When, when she read Griffin's review, but I mean, I guess it does sort of get to the topic of how we read and why we read, Kate. And and you sort of you had an interesting. Approach approach to, to your collection. Yeah, so my reading this year has really taken place on trains and on buses. I now live in Connecticut. I have moved to the suburbs earlier than I thought that I would, but I have. So I selected small books, books that are very portable and easy to carry with me as I come to work. And one of the novels or novellas, I should say, that I read this year was by this Icelandic writer that I read in translation, obviously, The Whispering Muse. And the author's name, I think, is pronounced Sean. It's S-J-O-N. And he is a really interesting guy. He's a poet. He's also a lyricist. He's just a big literary figure in Iceland. But I had done an internship at a publishing house at FSG a few summers ago. And this was the book that I was given by one of the publicity associates and recommended to me as one of the best things they had published in years, which I found interesting because I had not heard of this writer and heard of all of his work that's been translated by this same woman, Victoria Cribb, into English. But it's just this great fable of a book about an academic who finds himself on a seafaring voyage with one of Jason's Argonauts, and they sit around the table every night and hear stories. The academic is really jealous because the Argonaut, Canis, can captivate audiences with his stories of metamorphosis and love and jealousy. And the academic has this dissertation about fish and Nordic ethnic superiority, and no one wants to listen to it. And so I can't imagine why. (laughs) So he's jealous. And so it's funny. And um, it also got me thinking about reading, because when you're reading a book like this, you're constantly switching between the sort of main clothesline thread of the narrative and the little 
myths and episodes that get narrated along the way. So you're being introduced into new characters in this fabulous world and then coming back to the dinner table. And the book's short, so these episodes are short, but it also just got me thinking about how you read a text like that that's sort of in an old-fashioned style, like an odyssey sort of style, where you're constantly being interrupted to hear about things that happened in the past and those episodes wrap up nicely, but then you're back onto something that's still moving along. So when I'm reading on the train and the bus, I think about things like that because I'm constantly being interrupted and getting off and changing lines. And so it's nice to have a lot of good stopping places. And this book had a lot of good stopping places. You know, you sort of talk about this idea of sort of reading kind of in the past and in the present in some ways. And that's sort of how I experienced uh, one of my selections uh, this year too. It's uh, the first volume in a two-part diary, an Italian war diary uh, by a writer named Iris Origo. And she was actually the daughter of a British woman and a wealthy American, and she married an Italian aristocrat. And so she had kind of entree to all these different worlds once she lived in Italy. And this is what helped her become this uh, sort of great observer of what was unfolding in the late 1930s in Italy as, uh, as Mussolini had come to power. And it appeared that, in fact, the Italians would probably ally themselves with the Germans in war against England and likely the United States. One of the things in reading this book is uh, knowing, of course, what happened afterwards. So there's, there's this terrible sense of knowing what's to come and feeling sort of this helplessness. And, and in fact, Iris Origo herself sort of conveys this helplessness, even as she's reporting and sort of acknowledging that the Italian people don't want war. They seem sort of to somehow helplessly be falling into it in spite of themselves. Now, like all great diarists, she kind of keeps herself out of it. So she's doing a lot of observing and she would actually have had quite a lot to write about herself. I think she would have made a fascinating topic herself. But she also has this great eye and ear for the stories that she hears. Her godfather was actually the American ambassador to Rome. So she had these connections and she could hear what was going on in Rome and elsewhere in Italy as Italy is finding itself sort of being drawn into war against its – almost against its against its own will, I suppose. Obviously, it's a two-part uh, diary. So I really recommend reading both in tandem because you should. But uh, A Chill in the Air really is, I think, the better of the two if I had to, if I had to choose. So I don't know. If maybe you're only going to read one, read A Chill in the Air, even though I think you'll know how it turns out. But we sort of began this conversation by talking about how we read and how we come to the books we decide we want to read. And what do we, what do we have lined up next, I Oh, um, well, I've been reading Portrait of a Lady by Henry James because I wanted something small and light. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hmm. wonder where you got that idea. <laughs> oh. um, no, but so I, I thought that, um, you know, I, I'd read so much, as Matt says, about uh, the craft of writing works by journalists, uh, reporting, nonfiction. I want to go back into fiction um, because I think it can give access to something that nonfiction can't quite touch, which is the realm of the imagination. And mm -hmm. so James is describing, uh, I think, these private worlds that exist inside of our heads, but that have public consequences. So, you know, I, I wanted something that was just so far outside of our current, uh, let's call it, divided political environment. Mm. And I wanted the story of a, a portrait of a person, mm. uh, mm -hmm. a person learning to make decisions, mm. a person that has to decide the course of the rest of her life. But it's also 
deeply enjoyable. Mm, um, mm-hmm. So I find myself, even today, I was riding the subway and I lost it completely at the description of uh, one of uh, Isabel Archer, who's the main character, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. one of her suitors, Casper Goodwood, and James is always playing with names. <laughs> one, of the, one of the what greatest names. Too, yeah, right. Like, so yeah, one yeah, of the yeah. most wooden characters. Yeah, yeah. But so, I, I, you know, this kind of enjoyment, the pleasure that you can take from reading mm. uh, is something that uh, well, certainly not not only the magazine as an institution encourages, but one of the things that I find most inspiring about my colleagues is I know that when I get off the subway and I go in to talk about it, there will be somebody there to listen. Mm, mm-hmm. um, so that's what I, yeah, <laughs> so you can expect many more <laughs> comments uh, about Henry James and other things. Yeah. I've been reading a lot of contemporary fiction lately, I think as sort of a backlash to finishing my MFA in nonfiction in May. And so I've been reading a lot of fiction. I just read Britt Bennett's The Mothers. I read Alif Patalman's The Idiot this year, which was probably my favorite book I read this year, but didn't want to write about it for Christmas critics because everyone's written about that book. But I loved it. I'm reading Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad right now. Don't love it. I have a bad habit of reading to prizes. It's just a, a way that I create lists for myself. And because that book won the Pulitzer Prize, uh, uh-huh. I picked it up. Mm. I'm always thinking about how people decide what to read next. And I think that's because I've just finished up school and I don't have syllabi anymore to tell me what to read. But, but isn't I, there a liberation in that? In totally yeah. liberation. But also yeah. just do I go back and read all the things from the literary past that I want to read? Like, do I go back and read Henry James and Dostoevsky and Graham Greene and all these things that I feel like I should read that are on my list and that I want to read? Or do I sort of keep up with what's coming out now? Like Mm -hmm. right now, I've been reading novels that have come out in the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. So I think the answer is some of both. Um, But sometimes I do wish my colleagues could just write me a syllabus and I could go down the list and check it off. Consider it done. (laughs) Simon Staff-wide. So Matt, what do you got coming up? Anything you're looking forward Uh, to or enjoying right now? Well, I'm always reading a lot of nonfiction, kind of for mainly history, political science, political theory. So I'm in the midst of uh, Helena Rosenblatt's The Lost History of Liberalism, Mm -hmm. which I actually Mm -hmm. hope to Mm -hmm. review in our pages. Mm -hmm. So I read a lot of things like that. But in terms of fiction, maybe something different, I've never read Fanny Howe's, what is it, Indivisible? Indivisible, Indivisible mm-hmm. which, which Chris Wyman has, has always strongly recommended and mm-hmm. other people have recommended yeah. to me. Griffin's nodding. Sorry, uh, yes, I'm nodding. I'm <laughs> affirming you and you're deciding yeah, to read that so book. So that'll be kind of my, like, I take a novel home with me over Christmas mm-hmm. reading. Mm-hmm. And I also, I've been, re- you know, after Mark Strand died, the poet, mm-hmm. I I bought his collected poems and I've been meaning to really, like, do a deep dive into them, so... Over, you know, when I have a little more time off over the holidays, that might be something else I dip into. So I always try to have a, some fiction and poetry to leaven, mm. <laughs> leaven my more arduous reading in, in nonfiction. You know, and, and just to sort of, I guess, reveal to the audience a little bit about what happens even with our Christmas critics is, believe it or not, it serves to recommend the books uh, that we're reading to one another. And I, I've mentioned to Matt on a number of occasions that I've never read Edwin White, and it's mm-hmm. time now that this, I think that's what I'm going to uh, – uh, be doing this winter, but at the moment, I'm reading a, uh, a kind of a memoir. But a, a, it is truly a memoir, but it's written like a novel called "Really the Blues" by Mez Mesro, the uh, early 20th century jazz clarinetist and alto saxophonist. And I'm just finding it really incredible. It, it's 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 written in the in the argot, I guess, of uh, early jazz and blues. Uh, but Mesro ends up just being a really fascinating character, and of course, it helps that he hangs out with people like Louis Armstrong and Jack Benny and, and a number of other folks, and he spends a lot of a lot of time in Harlem and New Orleans and Paris. So he's you know he's sort of there when hot jazz is happening, uh, and he helps create it. And it's just a, a really fantastic book. 
And it also, I think, it's another from the New York Review of Books Press, which I think we all sort of have a little bit of a, not to give free <laughs> advertising to NYRB Press, but I think sometimes I, that is how I go about choosing what I'm going to read. Yeah. They do have a holiday sale going they on at the moment on their, on their website. And, you know, you and buy you, four, you get 40% and off. And you know, you know you're in a, book, uh, in a good bookstore, I guess, when you can go over to the to, – they have a display and it's just all those you know nicely colored spines mm. looking yeah. at you. And uh, yeah, see, we're already <laughs> – but there are other publishers out there as well and we should also acknowledge them. So <laughs> – well, if there are any final words, does anybody want to just jump in with anything and just one last recommendation or thought? Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Happy reading. <laughs> Happy reading and make sure to check out our Christmas Critics. It's in the December 1st issue and, of course, it's on our website. And there's others besides just the four of us as well, so you can, uh, you can take a look. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. You heard us talk about just a few of the books that we read and were featured in our 2018 Christmas Critics issue. You can see the full slate of selections and write-ups on our website. Now, while there, you'll also want to read Cassandra Nelson's latest essay, which is featured in our December 14th print issue as well. It's called Time is on Our Side. And while on one level it's a meditation on the liturgical calendar, it's also a reflection on the deeper meaning of time appropriate in Advent, this season of hopeful expectation. I'm going to read an excerpt. The liturgical calendar returns us to the physical world. Pay attention to the priest's vestments, to the colors of the decorations in church. They've recently shifted from the green of ordinary time to Advent's violet. Depending on when you're reading this, you might still have the chance to see rose, a color used only twice a year, including Gadet Sunday, the third Sunday in Advent. Such details remind us that however chaotic the world can seem today, there is still order and meaning, and liturgy by its very nature, descending as it does from the Greek words for public and work, helps pull us out of loneliness and into community. There's something wonderfully comforting about the realization that the words one says as part of a mass or church service are always echoed by other believers around the globe. The church calendar can lend additional richness to our lives thanks to the way that it sacralizes all aspects of the human condition. So often today we are surrounded by narratives of endless growth and ceaseless triumph. The way we talk about shareholder profits or university endowments, average SAT scores, and the desired life expectancies of Silicon Valley CEOs suggests that what goes up should really keep going up indefinitely. And if it doesn't, something must be wrong. Meanwhile, advertisements and social media can make it seem like everyone else is living a perfect life, effortlessly. The upshot of these narratives is that many people lack a way to talk about, and thus to conceptualize, human weakness, defeat, or death, without framing them as pathological. The liturgical calendar, by contrast, acknowledges that life can't all be hallelujahs here below. It carves out space for mourning as well as rejoicing, for fasts as well as feasts. It reminds us of Solomon's words in the book of Ecclesiastes, to everything there is a season. In doing so, the church calendar provides a model to strengthen us and dignify our experiences in times of both joy and sorrow. That's just a small part of Cassandra's essay. Read all of Time is on Our Side on our website or in the December 14th print issue. 
As 2018 comes to a close, I invite our listeners and readers to make a year-end tax-deductible donation through our online donation page. Each episode of the Commonweal Podcast costs approximately $800 to produce, and your gift will go to sustaining this program and its development for many episodes to come. We're grateful for the ways you've partnered with us thus far, and we look forward to bringing you more of the Commonweal Podcast in 2019. Thanks for listening to this episode. To all of our listeners and readers, we extend wishes for a joyous Christmas and a happy, peaceful New Year. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by associate publisher Megan Ritchie and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. David Dalt did the editing. We'll be back soon with the next episode of the Commonweal Podcast. If you like what you've heard, we have extended versions of these segments either through our website or on your favorite podcast feed. This is Dominic Preziosi. Thanks for listening.